Welcome back to Blood and Spirit Podcast. Uh, this is part two of my interview with Tanur She Writes Ali. We were going so deep and so long. I said, you know what? We better just cut this into two parts and come back um, with our... We're coming up on the end of season one, uh, exploration of uh, family culture in Albany, Georgia. You know, you're, you're one of those who weren't born here, but you got deep roots here. Your mom, me. <laughs> and grandmom and and great grandparents you know lived in Albany and before that uh, we came out of um, Mitchell County Camilla is where uh, my grandmother your grandmother your great-grandmother uh, my niece came from so we're going to talk about some of those roots and you know what what's the fruit of those roots there's a homeschooling uh, company in Atlanta that uh, does some activities called Roots and Fruits. So I'm going to uh, bite off a little bit of their Roots and Fruit uh, concept and say that you got deep roots in Albany and some of the you are some of the fruit. My grand links are some of the fruit. And so we're going to find out what impact that has had in your life as you see it. Okay. So welcome back to Noor. Thank you. Thank you. So you moved uh, to Albany for the <gasps> where, second time. Where were we? <laughs> <laughs> we were all over the place, but I'm going to pick up with your moving here from Philadelphia, where you were born and raised. Uh, I lived, uh, I moved uh, to Philadelphia with your oldest brother in August of 1980. Uh, he was one month old. Khalid was one month old when we moved there. And that's a story in itself. But you were born and raised in Philly, born at uh, Methodist Hospital in South Philadelphia. And um, in a, in a, everybody in my government. Say that again. I say give everybody my government. Everybody your government. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, Methodist is not there anymore. So I'm not sure they even know where the records are. So that would be hard. <laughs> That would be hard. But but we talked about that transition, you know, earlier from Philly to Albany, even though you had, we had moved down here and I homeschooled you um, mm -hmm. and Khalid and Suleiman uh, for those couple of years that we were, when we lived here uh, in the, in the early nineties. And um, that didn't last long, but then you went back and you thought that that experience here from those early years, you were like about seven between seven and nine uh, during those years. And you thought that would, would be a nice cushion to make you feel kind of at home, but you ran into mm -hmm. some stuff when you got here. And, um, and so you had to really, you know, learn how to navigate that territory. And so that was part of what that transition yeah. was like. Now, is that transition expressed in your poem, Georgia On My Mind? It is. <laughs> it is. I was so mad. Um, I think really my first, my first three years um, as an adult in Albany were tough. Just really tough. Um, and the the theme of those three years was humility mm. um the theme as given to me by albanians <laughs> was was humility 
<laughs> you gotta humble yourself, girl. You gotta get humble, girl. You need to humble yourself, girl. Um, was like the theme, and and I didn't understand it because at the time I felt so broken, and I couldn't imagine how much more broken I would require. I would be required to become in order to survive there in Albany. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was a tough, tough transition. So is, I got uh, to, oh, so tell, tell me what oh. you, um, is, is Georgia on my mind fresh enough in your memory for you to, um, to recite some of that right now? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Um, uh, Georgia. Georgia is not on my mind. She's on my wrists, like the shackles bonding my soul to history, time. She's not mine, and yet possession is involved. And my blood boils with the toils of future wars yet to be fought, and I'm spoiled. Yankee breed in complete shock. See, the culture smothers previous beliefs in freedom, but dreams don't shatter here. They are deferred like quality time. And this time is quality. I pray not for the quantity. See, I don't want to be left here by the hands of history or poverty, which blows on winds like the stench of 40,000 years of misery, all tattooed on the bones of forefathers' feet and displaced, distastefully, like fossils of ancient years tossed there and here by the air that once brought life to them. Spirits and apparitions have given sullen anxiety a permanent place here. We should burn all the trees that like fruit bear strange truth and begin to believe in the power of tears. Wash our memories away in this sea of desperation, then fill crude all through it destroy traces of our natural complacency. See, Mother Nature is fickle in that. That's it for now. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, that's powerful. And it, and it really, that's, that's the power of poetry. You know, like you said, it, it helps you to, it helps people to hear what you have to say, but, uh, but maintain something of a distance from it. Because all the things that you, you know, just described uh, earlier in our, in our, in part A of this, um, of this, of our interview, you describe those feelings and, and yet, you know, it's, it's so, I think poetry puts it into a, hu in a human perspective rather than a, and then a com conflict perspective. And so, so our, our right. minds are ready for the human experience more and, and we don't take it as personally. And that's, uh, it's really a gorgeous, gorgeous um, capacity uh, to be able to do that. And I know that, um, you know, one of the things that you didn't mention uh, in the first segment was um, the festival that happened in 2012. Okay, that was so, Penstroke Festival, that was such a, um, such a powerful event and such a, such a, uh, uh, how can I say, a transitional event. You know, it made things, mm -hmm. 
it, you know, it kind of turned things 180 degrees and caused them to go uh, in a different direction. And one of the things that you used to say that that was your um, uh, sort of a motto for that event was, I know you got a, a notebook in your pocket, you know, rock yeah. it, you know. And, and so it just contains so much. It just contains so much. So let's, let's go back a little bit deeper into, you know, so we talked about Georgia. We talked about that impact. We talked about what that experience was like um, changing. So how can you compare your, the, the culture of Georgia and the people of Georgia that you knew and the values that you were brought up with in your birth home? Mm-hmm. Georgia, Georgia is where I first really understood that most people are not raised to believe that they are God. Mm-hmm. Um, like even in, even in the, the hood culture in Philly, right? Growing up, in the 90s, brothers would introduce themselves to each other or greet each other with, peace, God. What's up, God? <laughs> you know, there was this, what's going on, black? You know what I'm saying? There was this, like, understanding of our power. And I got to Georgia, and it was like, Nobody had that. Even the people that I that I first so deeply connected with when I was there. Um, I remember somebody saying, I don't remember the exact situation it was, but I remember somebody saying to me, um, I had done something for them. And it was something that I was charging for. And they said, I'm paying you this money, but not because I'm thankful for what you did, but because I'm thankful to God for putting you in the place to do. And I almost didn't take the money except that I needed it. (laughs) You know, I almost took back the work because what an affront to God to say that the vessel that God chose to use to provide this thing for you is not worthy of your gratitude. You know, it was like, and that was, that, that was kind of like this overarching attitude that I came into contact with, where people had a perspective of God that we are not connected to it that we're not a part of it, that we're not a representation of that fact, of that reality that God is, you know? And um, and so that for me, like in a nutshell, was, was the difference between how I was raised in the home and what I, what I experienced in my interactions um, in Georgia. And, and so 
there's this disconnect between um between God and God's creations that I still to this day don't resonate with. Um because God operates through people, through animals, through experiences, all of this, you know, that I that that really got um for me that was that was a key teaching in my childhood that God is you, that your actions are representative of God, you know, and so, um, and, and actually the actions of God, you know what I'm saying? And so it was like, you know, you get down here and people are like, oh, thank God for what you did. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you know, like that was my whole, it was like, oh, you are welcome. You know, um, yeah, for me, that's in a nutshell. That's it. And so that value, that value of um, our being uh, people, being representative and, and all together part and parcel of who God is, um, what were some of the other values? That was one of the values um, that you were raised with. What were some of the other things that, that um, stuck with you as guiding principle? Keep up the happy spirit. Um, so I had this, have this capacity to be present in the moment. Um, so I've, I've experienced depression probably from the time I was like 11 throughout, throughout my life. Um, and yet I've been able to experience joy in very deep ways all throughout my years. And it became very difficult for me in in Albany to be able to express both joy and sadness with the people that I knew um, without being seen as fake. It was like, well, if you depressed, then why are you out here smiling? Or... Why are you posting all that peace and love on Facebook? And this, that, that's fake. That ain't real. This, that, and the other, right? But it's like, no, all of these things can exist at the same time. You know, like we're multifaceted, you know? So, uh, yes, I, I'm depressed. You know, yes, I'm a person who experiences depression. Yes, I'm, you know, you whatever. Whatever diagnosis you want to, you know, pull from the history, whatever, I'm still capable of experiencing the range of human emotion and expressing those emotions when I'm feeling them. Um, and then especially using that range to pull myself up, to be able to, to grab onto a happy spirit and hold on to it and, and use it to propel myself forward, um, which, which for me became a very difficult thing to communicate in Albany. Um, yeah, so that was, that was one of the other values. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> how do you carry, uh, well, you, you've kind of explained how you carry those values into your daily life. Um, you know, with your belief in, you know, the, the education that you set up, uh, in your home, um, making those decisions to, 
uh, take on the responsibility for for educating your children uh, when your view was that the the system wasn't doing it correctly and the system wasn't doing it correctly and um and so you know so um i see that and so in in the moments where you need um support guidance um and such solace comfort who are some of the counselors and elders in your family that you turn to you um you're one of the majors uh sister jewel my eldest mommy and um and you know kind of she's she's really key in my understanding of how to how to build community she's she's been my coffee partner you know in the mornings for some years and um so we'll talk on the phone and have coffee in the morning and talk about what's what's up, what's going on, what's building. And so it's it's always funny talking to her because she um she pays attention to the people. And when I got into the social artistry work, uh there was there was a lot of times when people would um use this Margaret. Me? Margaret, somebody quote. Yes, Margaret Mead um, quote, you know, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And um, Sister Jewel kind of kind of lives by that uh, that mantra, that idea. And so whenever I'm I'm working on something, working to build something, put an idea together, she counts people, literally. She's like, okay, that's one. Who else? Who else can you call for? You know, who else will you go to? Mm-hmm. Okay, that one probably not. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay, we got three. Go ahead, move forward. You know, and um, so that's been really key. Our brother Kimazia, he's he's been key, you know, for so long in my life in helping me to be able to listen to my intuition, to know the voice of my intuition um, versus the voice of my fear or versus the voice of my ego, um, you know, or or versus the voice of the devil, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> or whatever kind of negative energy is, is swirling around, you know, to... Um, that, that kind of comes along and knocks you off track of, of whatever it is that you are moving forward on. Um, Rosanna, Rosanna has been very key um, to helping me to be able to see things from new perspectives. Um, and, and also, you know, it's been interesting. My relationship with Rosanna has been interesting because she's been um, how do I put it? A patron and um and very supportive in in making sure that I am able to take advantage of different opportunities that come across my path. Um, but also in teaching me that the work that I do 
when I when I take on an opportunity, um, when I meet a task and 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 really dive into it, that the work that goes into me learning whatever it is that I'm learning in that process is I really want to find the right word for this because this is important. Um, that that work that goes into that is equity in the opportunity that's been provided for me. And so I'm already worthy of the opportunity, right? And then when I rise to the occasion of, of taking advantage of that opportunity, that I have already fulfilled the obligation um, for having it provided to me. And that's, that's been really key for that's me. That's powerful. Um, yeah, right? Right? It's like, huh? Hey. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. L'Oreal, um, I deserve this. <laughs> I deserve this. You know, I'm worth it. Um, and it's and and that's that's been a really dynamic relationship for me. Um and I, you know, I value I value all of the elders who I call upon. Um, but there's been something really tangible. There's been a lot of, of really tangible lessons in shifting from a, an idea of being a poor person, um, that she's been able to teach me. And, you know, when I first started getting into facilitating and, um, traveling and doing my poetry and all that kind of stuff, um, she would say, are they paying you? <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity. Well, how much is it going to cost you to do it? <laughs> well, you know, well, are your lights going to be on after it's done? <laughs> well, I don't know, but I really need to take, you know, I need to, I need to do this and get my voice out there. No, they need to pay you. <laughs> you need to get paid for that. How much do you think you should get paid for that? You know, I mean, she like, no, you know, not playing about it. Like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, great opportunity. Where's the check? <laughs> you know, um, and that's been so key in helping me to be able to make a living. Absolutely. It's like, yeah, you're, you're right. I do need to make sure my life goes paid when I go and do this you know, hard work that I'm going to be preparing for weeks in advance and this, that, and the other, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, that, so that's, that's, that's absolutely, um, definitely key. Definitely key for, um, for the, to, to move out of the starving artist paradigm because artists are different, you know, artists, uh, most art, many artists can do the nine to five thing, just cannot do the nine to five thing. And, um, and that's what, you know, basically this, this society is, um, is built on the capacity to do the nine to five or 11 to three or 11 to six, whatever, um, kind of, uh, that kind of paradigm. And so, um, that, that was that was definitely some important um 
capacities that she helped to provide you with. And it also points to the, the blood, the, the spiritual family that, um, mm -hmm. that you're able to connect with because most of those people, well, several of your, of your um, mentors are, are not part of your biological family, but a part of your spirit of the spiritual family that you've um, gathered around you over the years. So talk, tell us a little bit about what your perspective is on, uh, on family, you know, on the, the, the difference and the sameness between uh, blood and spirit family. I think the ability for, for me in my life, one, one, I've, I'm just going to say, I've been blessed with a really dynamic blood family that has, um, that's really instilled in me a, a deep abiding understanding of my responsibility in the world mm -hmm. um, to be my best self. And so, so moving, moving throughout the world with, um, with this idea that there's not only a likelihood, but a responsibility to, um, to live up to my own ideals of what my greatness can be mm -hmm. has been really key. And then, and then also as with any family, there mm -hmm. were, uh, those, those lightweight traumas that happen that make you go along questioning yourself, right? Um, and so, and so early on, I started to seek relationships with people that would um, affirm my desire to do what I wanted to do, um, to be who I wanted to be, to show up in the ways that I didn't see people showing up um, in my household, most people. Mostly the family that I was seeking were people who operated in my life the way that you operated. But we had such a large family um, that there were a lot of times where your influence was drowned out. Um, by other things that were going on. And so, and so when I went out seeking friendships and, and seeking um, long-term relationships with people, I was seeking people who would function as like, who would give me more use in my life. Mm. More people who were like, oh, Tanur, yes, you can do that. Why do you think you can't do that? Wait, can you say that? Say that again. Say it out louder. Wow. Oh, so you can do that. Okay, great. Let's go. Here we go. Doing it. You know, and it's like, um, you know, and so so for me the the ability to build a spiritual family is 
key. It's, it's a part of what we must do um, because our blood family can only do so much. You know, they are who they are. And then each of us individually has things that we are supposed to bring into the world um, that need different, different types of DNA, you know, um, different types of, of influence. And so I think I answered the question. I think you did. I think you did. And thank you. Thank you for, um, for that. That's, that, that feels, um, that feels super great to, you know, that you were looking for more means that, I mean, that's pretty awesome. Thank you for that. Um, at the same time, I understand. Thank you for being a prototype. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, I know, I know that I grew up with, um, you know, as much as I appreciated and loved my mom and understood that she loved me and she loved all of us and, um, you know, that she was doing her best, I saw things that I wanted to change about uh, how things were. Did you grow up with uh, any sense of things that you wanted to change uh, about your family? Yes, yes, right off. Okay, so um, I think I was around, I must have been about 11 or 12, probably around, probably around 11. Um, when I started being interested in other religions, um, you know, for the listeners, I was raised in the nation of Islam and, and there was dinner time bothered me a lot. The, the boys being served before the girls bothered me tremendously Mm -hmm. because to me it just didn't make any sense that the people preparing the food should eat last i mean that just you know to me that just didn't make sense um because the people preparing the food had 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 been preparing food for people who were waiting for the food like not for people who were doing something and then coming in to eat, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and, and so I could get the historical context of it, but I could not get the present day context. It didn't fit to me. And so it was like, um, there were these ideas of, of modesty, um, among the women and, and just kind of in general, this sense of, um, yeah, it just felt like misogyny to me. It just felt like um, like male superiority um, as as a part of the culture in the household that to me just didn't make sense. You know, the males are um, are to be understood as these these beings whose control over themselves is so limited that the females are required to have a level of control of themselves that keeps the males at bay. And yet you have to be in service to them. 
like none of that, that it didn't it didn't match up to me now granted like i have i have some deeper understanding of um of some of it at this point in my life um that will be a whole a whole other interview and and long conversation to get into but for me that was the beginning of of seeing things that needed to shift it was like um the boys can cook dinner too the boys can set the table too the boys can make the toast too you know um especially since they're not doing anything you know um and so yeah that was that was kind of the beginning of looking at things in the house like mm, nah, I ain't doing this like this. <laughs> and so you grew up to have um some other so you know some additional goals in parenting in addition to the ones that uh that were uh sort of imposed on you in growing up so what are some of your goals as a parent oh education um Freedom of education to me is is huge and was hugely influenced by my upbringing. Um, to be raised with the idea that the white man is the devil and then to be sent to public school didn't make any sense to me at all. I was like, why is this happening? Like, wait a second. And then, so I'm supposed to walk around with this idea that um, that the dominant force in society has nothing but my worst interest at heart. And I need to assimilate into that culture enough to be able to survive. Huh? Wait, we can't figure out no other way to survive? Like, there has to be another way. There has to be. And to me, um, raising our own children and educating our own children. But I will say that there was plenty of homeschool happening in the household. There was plenty of teaching um, that was going on in the household on a regular basis, aside from public school, that was key. And um, and helped me to even develop a capacity to to see the ability to do it differently. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that was education was one. Um, there was also tenderness. There was not a lot of tenderness. I felt like um, I felt like I could go to Omara and you tenderness mm -hmm. and at a time when somewhere between 12 somewhere between 16 and 19 people living in the house right and I had two people that I could go to for some tenderness um or yeah so that was big well, you got to give our listeners a little bit of understanding as to uh, why there are so many people in the house and and really a little bit of the dynamics um, that you are referencing, but uh, can't couldn't possibly be clear for our listeners. So, so explain uh, how you want how we wound up with that many people in the household. 
So I'm I'm the child of a polygamous marriage, and the um, baby girl of twelve children um, who resulted from that marriage. And so my father uh, died when I was two years old, and the his his wives and the mothers of his children. Um, joined together and had been already joined together before he passed, but really joined together in a, in a decision to raise us all together as one family, um, in one household. And so that's why there were so many people in the house, four mothers, 12 children. Um, and then I don't know how those other people got around exactly, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which other people? Um, uh, let's see. Um, Brother Rockman, um, and whoever else I don't know. Um, but you know, whoever else was was there at at a given time um, as a part of the family, and always, um, always the adults were always doing stuff. You know, there was obviously a lot to be done with 12 children in the house. Um, That, you know, half the second floor being a laundry room thing. (laughs) You know, it's just like one, um, you know, snapshot of of the amount of work that I imagine, you know, was being done at all times. The jewelry shop and um, and the the community action and all of the things. that needed to be done. And so, so that's why there were so many people in the household and why, why I, you know, a part of, a part of the atmosphere that supported the idea of our capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, the doing, the, the making things happen um, was, was just a, it was not even something that had to be mentioned because it was like just a constant motion in the environment. Um, and so, you know, so like the idea of not being able to have school clothes, right. Was like never a thing for me, you know, and it might've been some questions among the adults of whether, whether how, how that was going to happen, you know, but for me, it was never a thing. Um, and so, so that was a, a part of what I'm talking about in that, in that building of capacity. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I can, um, I can bear witness to our, um, something of a militaristic type of stance, you know, that would, that would, uh, you know, interfere with the, with the tenderness, you know, like, uh, a focus on order. Um, and, um, and, and, and a kind of conformity, um, in an, in a, in a desire and an intention to make a new people, because that was the, Mm -hmm. that was the goal to, to make a people who are self-sufficient, who don't stop at limitations and who, you know, continue to go forward. So, so those, um, so that tenderness, yeah, I can see. 
And you know, if I can if I can add on to what you just said, um, and the people who are able to navigate the environment of the United States, um, you know, there's the both and right. Like on one hand, it's like you know, why are you sending me to public school? And you know, that does. Why don't you just teach me at home? Because you know, we, we're doing a different thing than everybody else. Um, but then there is also that understanding of like, this is the world that we live in and we have to know how to navigate it. Um, that I think was, was useful as well. Um, now, but I still wanted know, to do something a little different. Right. On that note, that was, that was pretty much my motivation in homeschooling. Um, my three, when I, when I, um, stepped out, and decided that um, I personally, as an adult, needed to uh, have more of an interface with the society outside of that cocoon, and came, um, brought y'all down here, and we, we did homeschool for that couple of years. That was my motivation to, I, I didn't want to have to um, overcome the miseducation of the Black Muslim children, okay? Um, I wanted you to have one education and, and, and actually that's a, that's um, a very deep uh, aspiration for me to be able to, it would be wonderful if I could just be in an educational environment that I didn't have to filter. But I, I know that I constantly have to filter the information that comes through, comes to me through the education um, that I get. I have to, I have to, you know, verify and and really not trust um, the intentions of the educate of the system and and so forth and so um, so that was that was my motivation and the thing that was different between me and you is multitasking you know so you we you all went back to school <laughs> because you know making money. And homeschooling children, and you know, being the at-home mom, at the, all of that, being the teacher and the at-home mom and the and the um, the unpaid teacher, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, the breadwinner. Mm -mm, that that didn't work for me. I said, you know, so in the end, I uh, I sent you back to school because I I didn't have that multitasking capacity. And your multitasking capacity um, has been, you know, just phenomenal to me, being able to, um, to raise the children, run a business, um, maintain your art, develop, develop programs, and ultimately travel the country with them, uh, I think is, is, is just, you know, just very admirable and really phenomenal. And so I really appreciate that. And, um, so in, in all of this, in your current family structure, not your growing up family, what have you found as one of the greatest challenges that you've had to face? Mm. Providing financial. Mm -hmm. that's, that's for me the biggest challenge. Um, homeschooling, I've made easier and easier for myself over time. 
um, because I trusted the children more and more to be able to guide their own learning. Um, and to, and, and then I trusted myself to be able to, um, interact with, with their learning, um, as needed. Um, but yeah, but it always seems like there's never quite enough stuff, you know? And, and so that's been, that's been the biggest thing. I learned a lot from you about how to, um, how to navigate not enoughness, um, as far as, as far as provisions, you know, like how you used to do no utility days. Right. Um, and for me, I didn't do no utility days, but we had days with no utilities. Right. And so it was like, yeah, <laughs> here's how we're going to figure this out. <laughs> um, but but I didn't have a, a plan in place necessarily for how to how to function if um, if there wasn't enough money to pay the bill. Right. But I did have the understanding of how to function if, you know, the lights get cut off and that sort of thing, um, which has which has been extremely useful. Um, but it's, it's been, it's been a struggle figuring out how to make things go financially. And, and yet somehow, right. Um, like we have everything we need, you know, um, which is still a little bit beyond me, like understanding how that, how that happens is, is still a little bit beyond me. But that's been that's been the greatest challenge. And so you've navigated that challenge with, um, you know, a, a, it's a little bit beyond your understanding. But explain um, to the best of your understanding how you navigate your financial challenges. What what are the what are some of the keys that uh, are the driving forces? for your navigation? Um, well, one has been knowing the value of the work that I'm doing. So the work of raising intelligent, capable, self-sufficient people in the world is valuable, invaluable work. Like there's, you know, there's no uh, maximum wage, right, for that work. And so um, I've developed over time an ability to ask for help when I need it. Um, that, that has been really dynamic, you know, in that, in that process of, of being able to provide for the children. Um, understand understanding that I can communicate the value of this work and that value can be um, met with money. You know, it's like, I, I can decide, okay, I need to take these children around the, around the country and, you know, show them, 
show them what life is like in in these United States of America, right? In in all mm-hmm. different types of environment. And then I can tell people that that's the goal. And people will say, yeah, I want to help. Right. Here you go. <laughs> and so, like, and so it being able to do that, being able to understand the, the value of the work that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis and just being present with my children and then being able to communicate that key. I mean, you know, I could probably list other things, but that right there, key. Awesome. Awesome. That that capacity. And I think that that has been a very um, important factor in, in building community. Um, you know, one of the kind of like, it's, it's becoming kind of cliche to be authentic. You know, in mm-hmm. um, you know, it's kind of like one of the things that you're supposed to do nowadays. You know, that uh, authentic is in, right? Um, hmm. But but that's a genuine kind of authenticity that says, you know, when you can put your put your needs on the table and um, and appreciate the your value, the fact that you have a value in that exchange. It's a social, it's a social value. And it's also not just what you're doing inside of your own household, but what you're doing um, for other households as well. And what you're doing uh, in the artistic community and um, what you're doing in the agricultural community. So, you know, so there's definitely. um, Being able to set an example you know, to say, to say, yes, I can, and I will, um, and then being able to invite people to be a part of that process, I, th- Jim Anderson, okay, I'm just going <laughs> to, like, Jim. throw Jim Anderson, Jim in Anderson on this one right here, okay, <laughs> wow, wow. Jim Anderson, who I met at the Thriving Communities Conference in on Whidbey Island at the Whidbey Institute in 2015, 14, 14 or 15, um, really taught me that I'm not asking for help. I'm inviting participation. Wow. Huge shift. <laughs> Huge shift. It was like, he was like, this is not, no, 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 you're looking at this all wrong. This is not charity. <laughs> this is not charity. We are contributing to the improvement of our world through the work that you do. And the more people know about the work that you do, the more our world will improve. And this is, and and thank you for the opportunity to participate in the improvement of our world through you. Oh, what? Hey! (laughs) Huge shift. I went from asking for donations to inviting participation in the work. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Boom. 
That's pretty awesome. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna shift a, shift gears real quick here, and I'm gonna ask you, how do you maintain your family history and memorabilia? Right here <laughs> on the walls behind me. <laughs> um, I have. I have files and files and files of um, the children's artwork of um, birthday cards and, and Mother's Day cards and, um, and important documents and all sorts of stuff. Like I, mostly I maintain these things through files. And then I have boxes that are, you know, kind of organized right um and then i have wall space and so i'll just i'll just kind of do like a little pan around the room and i know the folks listening to the audio will miss this but i'll just kind of give an idea there are photos and cards and postcards and um paintings and artwork and um, plans and vision boards all over my walls. And all of them are historical. I have my, my vision boards for the past uh, five, 2019, seven years um, up on one wall um, because the history of what I was dreaming about seven years ago is a part of the present that I'm living in now. You know, um, my vision board seven years ago has a white house on it with a black roof and a porch that wraps around from the front around one side. And I live in a house that looks like that now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this, this picture of grandma on the wall mm -hmm. um, that I have sitting in the church pew and um, and, you know, being the, you know, the mother of the congregation and mm -hmm. all of that, um, feeds what I do continuously. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because I, you know, she's, she's a church mother, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm a community mom. Mm -hmm. And so I maintain my family memorabilia by keeping it all around me mm -hmm. and by being able to access it um with my hands at at any time you know? awesome. awesome awesome and so what is your uh five year you, you spoke about your vision boards what is your five-year vision for your family my five-year vision for my family um five years i see all my children out of high school um I see this land just overflowing mm. um, with abundance, with resources, with food, um, with family, you know, blood family and spirit family. Um, I see abundance and in so many tangible ways, you know, um, completely self-sustainable in five years. I think we could be completely self-sustainable. I think we can have a solar grid. Um, I think we can have water catchment. I think that we will have those things 
um, a food forest and and will have cultivated a local and national and global community of um, of people who are building the same where they are and contributing to the growth here. Um, that's what I see. Awesome, awesome. That- I'm gonna throw this, this, this is a part of it too. I, I really see my children thriving in themselves. They're all so different from each other. And I really see them being able to express the fullness of themselves um, as they grow. I see that building more and more. And I think in five years, they'll be at a really beautiful point in that process um, of, of being their full selves and, and manifesting their value in ways that are um, tangible and exemplary. Awesome. Awesome. And it'll be wonderful to, um, to play that song for them, play this song for them uh, in those years. And it, it's, uh, as, as, as history and memorabilia uh, go, you know, I, I, I um, would be, it will be wonderful to be able to um, hear the visions of my parents, you know, uh, at different points in, in time to know what they were working toward and to, and not only as a, uh, as a memory for me, but as a reinforcement, you know, uh, of their own visions for the future. And so as you go through, uh, and you know, you're still, you're projecting, you're, you're looking forward. Uh, for my last question, I want you to project uh, forward a couple of decades. And, mm-hmm. and I'm going to flip this question and ask you, what advice would you give to your 70-year-old self? Whoa. Moment of silence, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, what advice would I give my 70-year-old self? Indulge. Ah. Uh, wow. I think I'm coming to a place in my life right now where I'm my my body, my spirit, my mind are calling for um more discipline. Mm-hmm. And and I think my 70-year-old self um will probably need that advice. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's okay. That's wonderful. Well, it has been a fabulous time talking with you and, and learning more about you and hearing how you um, put uh, your experiences and your ideas together. Uh, in your mind and in your uh, expression. And so thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. You, you dropped a lot of stuff that uh, I know our listeners will be able to, to take and apply. And um, 
looking forward to seeing that uh seeing that five-year vision unfold with you and um digging in the ground to help make it happen thank you mommy thank you thank you Mary. i have really enjoyed this conversation and it's it's been great to um to have it because a lot of the stuff we talked about has has been kind of floating around my mind and not really um in in order you know so it's it's been nice to put some of these thoughts into into order thank you so much thank you and thank you to our listeners um this is blood and spirit that's what it's about y'all have a great day Peace.